If the warranty on the used car you're considering doesn't last long, what's that say about the car? Yeah. Hyundai certified used vehicles have an industry-leading 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain limited warranty from first sale. Hurry in now and get yours with low 3.99% APR financing available on select models. Hyundai certified used vehicles. For confidence now and down the road. It's your journey. Offer ends 1031-2023. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. This is the place where you want to go for the latest in news and culture and, yes, sports. Go to thenation.com. We are as good as it gets. Let's go. Hazing in sports, what it is and what needs to be done. A sports scholar whose skateboarding study and activism has made waves around the world. And I have some choice words about the reexamination of the movie The Blind Side in the wake of some really disturbing allegations. Edge of sports. Let's do it. A champion is bred from hard times, scarred mind standing on the ledge. The squad grind all time victory in spite of opposition. Welcome to competition. You pick a side, I pick a side, they pick a side. Take a knee against abuse, they rather you die. Pushing through dark tunnels, trying to shed light. The fight is on the moment we enter the game of life. Get it right for the whole thing, gone dead. Let's go ahead and take it there. Meet me on the edge. Welcome to Edge of Sports TV. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talked to documentary filmmaker Byron Hurt whose shattering new film, Hazing, is garnering tons of attention. And of course, we're going to discuss the hazing scandal at Northwestern. And later, we have sports scholar Dr. Neftali Williams, whose expertise lies in what he calls skateboard diplomacy. And I have some choice words about the movie The Blind Side. But first, Byron Hurt. Byron Hurt, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Thank you, Dave. It's good to join you. I mean, Byron Hurt, you are one of those filmmakers who can choose your topic and then go after it. Uh, you've reached that level in the industry. So, But why hazing? Why did you say this is going to be my next project? Well, you know, Dave, it took me a long time to come to that conclusion, to make that decision. Um, for a long time, I was afraid to take on a subject like this um, because of my own relationship with my fraternity, uh, my own involvement with my fraternity. I know how taboo a topic it is to address. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I've been working in gender violence prevention for many, many years. And so I've been mm -hmm. dealing with issues around violence prevention. And you know, so it made sense that this would be a topic for me to, to take on. Um, but it, it wasn't until I got on an airplane and I read the story about a young man named George Daydoon, um, who died at Cornell University. And mm -hmm. I read his story in the New York Times that I got a call to address this topic. And then months later, I watched a, um, a news clip about the death of Robert Champion, who, of course, is the, the uh, band member who was beaten to death by his Florida A&M uh, bandmates at, at, at FAMU. And that's the, that's the story that sent me over the top and said, Byron, you should make this film. You're the person to make this film. You have the credibility to make the, the film and you have the background. You have the, the, um, the cultural competency to tell the story. You know, I'd like you to, if you could, to take us 
down that road as far as why this film was so personal for you and how long you had been thinking about doing it, but just were saying to yourself, no, this is a line I can't cross. I mean, you just told us why you did cross that line, but I guess I'm curious about what prevented you uh, from crossing it previously and also, you know, the initial question, if you could take us down that personal journey. Well, I'm a member of a black Greek letter organization. Um, I'm a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, and I love my fraternity. Um, I have an uncle who plays the same fraternity back in the 60s. Um, the fraternity is an incredible organization. I love my fraternity brothers. I love the organization. Um, but back when I came through and I pledged the organization, I went through a process that is now illegal um, and should no longer take place. Um, but it still happens um, in many organizations, not just Omega Sci-Fi, but many organizations. And I just felt like the time had come to really address the issue um, because there are people who are dying, young people who are dying, young people who are scarred emotionally and psychologically for years um, after they go through whatever process they go through to become members of their organization. And we're talking beyond Greek life. We're talking about sports culture. I mentioned Robert Champion. He was the member. He was a member of a marching band at Florida A&M University. Um, so this is something that um, hazing is something that happens in a lot of different spaces. And what held me back from from telling the story, Dave, quite honestly, was fear. It was it was my own personal fear of. Um, the pushback and the backlash that could result from me taking on this story. Has it been better than you feared, worse than you feared? And what has been the reaction of some of your brothers? Well, initially the backlash was real. It was, it was about what I expected. You know, it took me 10 years to make this film, Dave. Mm. So I had a lot of time to ruminate and think about what the response would be for this film as we worked on uh, the documentary and I knew the kind of stories that we were covering. I knew that there was going to be a very emotional response to it. So I, I was prepared for that emotionally. Um, but, you know, initially when um, the, the initial trailer uh, went viral and it went viral through my organization in particular, um, there was a really strong uh, reaction to it, very strong reaction to it, a very strong negative reaction to it. However, um, on the flip side, there was also a very strong positive reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, but that that support and that reaction was mostly private, which I think is very interesting. So there was a public backlash, but a private solidarity, if you will, with among uh, fraternity brothers and other members of um, divine nine organizations or Greek organizations that are not exclusively black, um, who reached out to me to thank me for making the film, shared many of their personal stories, uh, talked about some of the injuries that they sustained while they were going through their pledge process, some of the emotional scars that have been lasting. So it was a, it was a mixed bag, but, um, I would have to say that most of the people who responded positively to the film actually took the time to watch the film. The wow. people who had a negative reaction to the film had not seen it. They were reacting to 
a 30 second trailer in which they thought that I was being disloyal, you know, to the organization. Wow. F I funny dispute, how that works. I just, I dispute that flat out. I do not, I don't see this film as, as being disloyal or um, betraying my fraternity on any level. Mm -hmm. Our fraternity, my fraternity, Omega Psi Phi fraternity is a non-hazing organization. It's, it's publicly stated on our website that it is an anti-hazing um, organization and, and it does not tolerate hazing. So if anything, this film um, really should have um, been supported wholeheartedly um, by the fraternity because the goal of this film is to raise awareness and to change the culture of hazing. Would you resist being described as a whistleblower? I think being a whistleblower may be too strong a word, um, mainly because my goal is not to undermine any of these organizations and, and to stop them from, from existing. Uh, the, the goal of this film is to educate and to raise awareness about um, a practice, a tradition and a practice that unfortunately and tragically um, is taking lives, right? You know, parents are sending their, ch their children off to college and unfortunately some are not making it back home. To me, that's worthy of having a discussion about why this is happening. And if they're not, if they, if, if let's say for example, um, you know, young people, you know, go, go off to college and they decide to pledge an organization or join an organization and they don't die, right? it's very likely that they are going to um, live with some psychological or emotional trauma that is either discussed or, or not discussed. And so I wanna bring this discussion out into the open for people to talk about it, um, discuss it, and figure out ways to, um, to change the culture in a way that maintains the, the organizations, but eliminates some of the more risky, dangerous, and unnecessary practices that have been going on for for decades mm. you said the, yeah yeah if not centuries uh yeah. you mentioned the word sports earlier of course hazing has been very much in the news front page of the sports page uh with regards to the football program at northwestern university what was your response when you heard about this story i was not surprised at all when i heard this story you know, one thing that I learned over the course of working on this documentary is that you can count on a new hazing story emerging once or twice every year, if not more. Um, so when I heard about the story, I was not surprised. Um, I think what, what, what made this story different than other stories was that it was sports related. And there are young, young people experience hazing on sports teams almost as much as they do, if not more, um, than in Greek life. Um, but what what struck me about this particular story was uh, the fact that it had happened on a big time football program at an elite school like Northwestern. Typically when you see sports hazing uh, that takes place, it usually happens more commonly on a high school level. Um, and we see stories emerge that come out of, uh, you know, small towns where, you know, some sort of a hazing scandal, you know, erupts. Um, but so, so the nature of this one being on a, a huge college campus and an elite private university like Northwestern is what struck me the most. Mm, yeah, that that I think struck a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That because I think a lot of times people think of these elite campuses as somehow being immune. 
from this when it's in the heart of the football program, which is at the heart of the university itself. Uh, which does get to my next question. Uh, the coach, Pat Fitzgerald, who'd been there forever, was fired. And then the next thing you saw in the wake of this hand-wringing from the school president and the cons- the op-ed pieces ca- talking about how we can fight this scourge, you have a lot of the players and the coaches wearing solidarity T-shirts on the field with Pat Fitzgerald and with words like pride and things like that, like basically saying we have done nothing to be ashamed of. Did that reaction uh, surprise you? And where does that come from? No, that reaction did not surprise me at all. And it's, it's very typical um, for a team, players, the community that supports that team to rally around its head coach. You know, Pat Fitzgerald was a beloved, iconic coach at the school. He's a former player. Um, he was a, um, a highly decorated football player uh, when he was a student there at Northwestern and became a, a pretty successful coach and, and was able to turn that football program around. So it's very similar to the kind of reaction that students had at Penn State University, you know, when uh, the Joe Paterno scandal um, was at its peak. Um, you know, people tend to strongly identify with the, the team and the coach um, when, when something bad happens, you know, or something, you know, something impacts the team in a negative way. So I wasn't really surprised by that. I saw, saw yesterday on ESPN.com that um, I think more than 1,000 um, players uh, submitted a letter. And these were, they were, these were not only football players, but I think um, players who represented several sports uh, wrote a letter um, in support of uh, the, the football team and the athletic program and the culture of the athletic program at Northwestern um, and, and basically said they did not condone the hazing that took place, um, but spoke very highly about the culture that exists at Northwestern within the athletic program. Um, so, you know, I think that is, is pretty typical. You're talking about people who, um, who bled, who sweated, you know, um, you know, who, who, who gave their blood, their sweat and their tears for, you know, that university and they want to support it. One thing that really struck me in that article, though, Dave, is that, um, you know, there was one, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, the letter, but it says something to the effect of, um, you know, that that these hazing incidents should not in any way, um, you know, sort of paint a, a broad brush uh, against the entire university or the entire athletic department. Um, and And I think that that's really interesting because when, you know, I did a lot of gender violence prevention work, one of the things that we said when we worked with student athletes is that one rape case on a football team could severely damage the school's reputation, the team's reputation, uh, you know, the the reputation um, of, you know, the guys who participate on the team. So um, I, I would I would make the argument that it's in the best interest of colleges and universities to get ahead of um, any sort of hazing activities that are going on on the campus and really invest in um, some, some really solid prevention and education programs for their teams um, and also better supervision because one story like this or a series of stories that, you know, we have more than 10 allegations here um, could, could severely um, wound the reputation of uh, that, that organization or that athletic department. Is football 
particularly prone to hazing because of what we understand to be the violence of the sport and some of the machismo that's inherent in the sport? Do you see that getting broken down at all in recent years? I feel like there's been at least somewhat of a cultural change in football over the last decade in terms of talking about certain issues from men- from mental health to sexuality. But at the same time, it's still football. What do you see at the intersection of football and hazing? Well, there is no question that football is one of the most hyper-masculine team sports. Um, the only way to eliminate that is if you eliminate the violent aspect of the game. I played football from the time that I was seven years old until I was about 20, 21 years old. So I'm, I'm intimately familiar with the level of um, contact and, and, and violence um, in that sport. Um, however, there are other sports that are non-contact sports that also experience hazing. You have one volleyball player, former volleyball player, who came forward um, and said that she was hazed at Northwestern. Um, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, women on soccer teams, young men on soccer teams, um, you know, that went through some sort of hazing ritual um, in order to be seen as a full member of the team. Um, so there is definitely an intersection. You know, I think perhaps in the kind of hazing that took place um, is what makes uh, this this particular um, situation under Northwestern a little bit different. Um, you know, I've read some of the stories, some of the claims made by some of the former players who have filed lawsuits. Um, and yeah, there's there's a tremendous um, culture of masculinity that is sort of, um, I guess, a part of some of these practices um, that have been alleged, you know, um, on the football team. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I think that there's hyper-masculinity. I think that there was some some homosocial behavior, clearly, um, that was taking place um, with some of these, these practices. Um, and I think the fact that because football is such a, you know, um, manly, hyper-masculine sport, it makes it more difficult for players to opt out of it, you know, you know, because as, as a football player, you're supposed to be tough. You're supposed to be able to withstand um, and endure physical punishment um, in the interest of the team, right, to be a team player, right? So the, the goal, you know, if you are a new member of the football team is to fit in to the team's structure the team's culture and i think that's probably what happened um, with a lot of the football players at northwestern Mm. you've been so generous with your time though i I can't let you leave uh without saying something about Uh, (laughs) hip-hop because of course you did hip-hop beyond beats and rhymes uh tremendous documentary uh, about some of the issues we're talking about right now yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and how they relate to hip hop. So anybody who sees that documentary will also, I think, get some insight and in how you've backgrounded yourself to have this discussion. Sure. Well, therein lies the question. Uh, mm-hmm. Last night, I saw Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, KRS-One, Spinderella, Roxanne Shante, of course, Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. Yeah. Uh, it was a tremendous show to celebrate Hip Hop 50. And I was wondering who you were listening to uh, these days to experience some of the last 50 years? 
It's so interesting that you said that, Dave, because I've been listening to a whole lot of Jay-Z lately. I've been, mm. I have been listening to Jay-Z on repeat, and I plan to go see the exhibit at the Brooklyn Library, um, hopefully before the weekend is over. Um, but I, I marvel at Jay-Z's uh, ability as a, as a lyricist um, and also um, just how prolific he's been, you know, over the course of his career, um, cranking out hit after hit after hit. Um, but when I listen to hip hop, you know, I'm, I'm typically listening to artists like Black Thought, Nas, mm. J. Cole, um, uh, Rhapsody is an artist who I absolutely love and I think is a brilliant artist. So, you know, those those are my go to artists, you know, when I'm listening to, um, you know, hip hop on my on my headphones. Wow. Pre appreciate you, Brian Hurt. Before uh, you go, though, how can people access hazing? Well, the film is going to be available on Prime Video, Comcast and iTunes starting September 12th. Um, so you can find it there. It's also available for for purchase at the Media Education Foundation, Media Ed dot org media ed.org um and that's for um colleges and high schools and other educational institutions who want to show the film on their campus or purchase the film um so I'm, I'm very pleased and very happy the film has had a very um strong film festival run that has uh, come to an end um and so now we're focused on the digital distribution of it and hopefully people will have access to it and will be able to watch it and the film will continue to do its work, raising awareness about hazing culture. Mm. Byron Hurt, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports TV. Thank you. And now some choice words. Okay, look, if retired NFL offensive lineman Michael Orr had his life rights stolen by Sean and Lee Ann Tui, people who claim to be his adopted parents then the Tuies would have enacted a rancid and larcenous grift. A 14-page complaint filed in Tennessee says that contrary to the narrative that became a best-selling book and hit movie, The Blind Side, the Tuies never adopted Orr. Instead, three months after he turned 18, the Tuies tricked him into signing a document that made them his conservators, leaving him with fewer legal rights than a child. If these charges are true, then the book and movie, which grossed $300 million and helped win Sandra Bullock an Oscar, was part of a racket that leveraged white America's love affair with itself to scam Orr out of millions of dollars. The author of the book about Orr and the Tuies, a sales machine named Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, also needs to come to be held to account. Because Michael Lewis is somebody who right now is bashing Michael Orr for what he's going through, siding with the Tuies, when he, what he should be doing is answering the question, what did he know and when did he know it? Was Michael Lewis duped or was Michael Lewis part of the grift? Because what we do know, though, is that it was Lewis who spun this piece of Caucasian catnip the tale of the white Southern Christian Tui family who adopted troubled teen Michael Orr, who is presented in the book and film as incredibly simple-minded, and turned him into a wealthy football player through their Christian will. Now in court documents, Orr is saying that he learned several months ago that after going through his own legal papers, he had never actually been adopted by the Tuies. It was a sham perpetrated without his consent in order to get him to sign over his life's rights for nothing. 
They were not his parents in any legal or moral sense. They were conservators, like Britney Spears' dad. As ESPN's Michael Fletcher wrote in his expose, the Tuies used their power as conservators to strike a deal that paid them and their two birth children millions of dollars in royalties, while Orr would get nothing for a story that would not have existed without him. Now, for the film, you, you got to hear this. The Tui's two children got a $225,000 payment and 2.5% of the net proceeds for having their likenesses portrayed. That worked out to almost $5 million per kid and nothing for Orr. With that film deal, they tipped their hand as to who was really family. Yet this alleged swindle perpetrated by the Tuies is also only an extension of what is so grotesque about the blind side itself. A feel-good story that even without this lawsuit is hyper-exploitative trash. The smash hit starred Sandra Bullock as the white woman with a heart of gold, and Hollywood rarely fails with this trope that tells white America that it is, despite all historic evidence to the contrary, morally righteous as it accepts Rudyard Kipling's white man's burden to extend a hand to the poor and downtrodden. This trope has been used by liberal Hollywood since at least 1939, when Scarlett O'Hara let Mammy sass her out of the goodness of her heart in Gone with the Wind. The list of white savior prestige films is long, Mississippi Burning, Dangerous Minds, that praised garbage documentary about school reform, Waiting for Superman, those all come to mind. All of these movies sell the same tired fiction. When the Blindside film was released in 2009, the allegedly slow Orr spoke out against his depiction and refused to do publicity. Few noticed or wrote about it at the time. Orr may not have known about the fake adoption then, but he knew one thing about the movie that the Academy did not, that it was a terrible and racist film. The emerging truth about the blind side fits neatly within our cultural moment. We are living in an era where people are realizing that waiting for a Superman is a fool's pursuit. And people who present themselves as white saviors are more often than not white beneficiaries of black pain, just as the Tuies profited off of whore's hardships. If the charges are true and the court documents are damning, then maybe this will go down as a turning point to never trust this trope again. There already is a growing consensus and understanding among young white activists about the difference between allyship and paternalism, the importance of creating space for others to speak and lead, and the understanding that the white savior concept is a dangerous myth that has hurt far more than it has ever helped. Lewis was wrong to valorize this narrative. The Tuies were wrong to exploit it, which frankly they did whether these charges are proven or not. And Orr is right to take his name back. He's a hell of a lot smarter than Lewis or the Tuies have presented, and that may prove to be their undoing. Because the flip side to white saviorship is white underestimation. The Tuies underestimated Michael Orr, and now the whole world knows it. And now on Ask a Sports Scholar, we have someone who studies the intersection of skateboarding, diversity, equity, inclusion, international diplomacy, 
and I don't know, for all I know, a balanced breakfast. I don't know. It, but it's such an honor to have him here on the show, Dr. Neftali Williams. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, sir. It's an honor to be on the show with you. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, so let's take a step back for a second. Uh, you're, you're going through life. You're going through school. How did you come to see skateboarding as an area of study? Well, what, it really goes back to my early days back in Massachusetts. When I first got started skateboarding, what I saw is it was a way for kids who normally not be associated with each other or didn't really have any common backgrounds um, to find a new way to actually like build a community and have fun together. And that was something that was very different because our parents, uh, I'm African-American, there were Asian-American um, um, skaters who were there at the time, Latinx skaters, people from all walks of life. And our parents weren't really connected. It was more keep to yourself. This is our group. This is your racial group. This is how we identify. But it was skateboarding that was so new that it broke down those barriers. And because there were no coaches and there were no teachers, we all were basically, I didn't have the words for it then, but we we're all doing experiential learning. We we're all learning together, figuring out what to do. And I saw that that was something that was special in skateboarding culture, that we needed to do this and learn together. And that was really the basis of saying, where, what are the ways in which we need to create a better world and have more people who don't have similar backgrounds find a common ground? So I've kind of chased that thread my whole, my, my whole life. That's, that's, that's so unique about skateboarding. I mean, I wish more of our social activities had people imagining different worlds and breaking down barriers and coming together over the artificial divisions that keep us apart. What do you think it is uniquely about skateboarding that allows for that kind of interaction and that kind of imagination? Well, you know, what I really think is, it's to be honest with you, it's marginalized sport, right? This is not traditional sport. It doesn't have all of the um, airplay on ESPN. It's not talked about every morning. It's always operating in a marginal space. And because it's operating in a marginal space, it forced everyone to be part of the culture and to be you know, really down for each other. And so that has remained the same um, since, since in my early days um, back in Massachusetts. But just as recently as my time at the X Games, just a few weekends ago, that same spirit has always been with it. And understanding that you've always been the underdog and the sort of lack of lack of the same resources really makes makes it be something special and something unique that works across the globe because everyone is experiencing the same thing. And there's no particular body type you need. There's no particular amount of money you need to have or particular space. That's perfect. So because of that, it really is this universal, you know, this universal activity that that everyone can get involved with. And we just we need to extract from that and use that to build new spaces for everyone. Those are the lessons we can learn from skateboarding. Mm, one barrier I can see from for doing that is, you know, the state itself. I certainly yeah. know of a lot of local examples of the criminalization of youth skateboarders. Is that an international phenomenon? I, I would say generally, yes, because what happens is it's marginalized because the generations before, not a lot of people were, were actually practicing skateboarding. So to them, it might be there might be stigmas or stereotypes about who skateboarders are, what the skateboarding lifestyle is like. And so it's something that I do see sort of sort of universally, but universally in Western countries, because in some spaces, it's so new that 
everyone is excited about it. And that's something that you'll see in the way that nonprofits like Skatistan, which Skatistan was operating in Afghanistan and making it so young girls who were not traditionally allowed to practice sport. Well, they weren't seeing it as sport. It wasn't something that had a history. It was just this sort of new activity that anybody could participate in. Mm. And because of that, that's when it operates in these great ways. And, you know, I do work in Cuba as, as, a, as a diplomat, both for the, New, the Department of State and when I was working for Cubascape. And in those instances, they have different values around sport, right? They like baseball, but skateboarding is operating in this new space where it's so new that it doesn't have the same stigma of being attached to like a U.S. sport. But at the same time, it offers the values that they like in collectivism, right? And like thinking themselves as one Cuba. But on the U.S. side, it also gives them the ability to have self-expression and it's really think about their own individual identity. So it really works in all of the spaces. And as we have new generations of, of, um, of skaters move into academia or move into television or broadcast, as the skateboarders themselves move, that sort of changes those stereotypes. And we now are seeing like next, you know, two, two generations of skaters, three generations of skaters. And that's improved that climate of criminality. But it still does, it still does happen. You've done so much, and this this just relates to your answer that you just gave. You've done so much to bring skateboarding into the light uh, in a way that does shield it from state repression in some respects. I mean, bringing it forward as this activity that has a legitimacy, if you will. Um, And that's incredibly positive and important work. But does it run a risk of eliminating or at the very least sanding off some of the outlaw culture that's made skateboarding such a spectacular cultural force? You know, I get that. Thank you for that question. And, and, you know, a lot of skateboarding, skateboarding space in the Olympics right now has really sort of prompted that discussion. And even sports scholars have said, well, well, you were doing something unique before, but now you're in the system. Now you're in the matrix because it's the <laughs> Olympics. And right, you're you're now you now you're truly they say now you're no better than anybody else. Right? <laughs> so so you know I do take that all with a grain of salt because the thing is, skateboarding is still this individual activity, and those sort of that ethos of your your own free spirit, your own interpretation, your own relationship with the city and your community that part doesn't change just because the contest goes on. We've had contests since the sixties. And the truth is those contests were reasons to bring the community together. And that's something that remains, even if it's as big as the X Games or as big as the Olympics. I don't know if you saw the, saw the articles or not, uh, but there was so much sports commentary, particularly the LA Times said there was an opinion piece that said the greatest, um, the greatest sport that they saw during the Tokyo Olympics was skateboarding. Mm. And the reason for that was because there was a camaraderie. It didn't matter what country, everyone was rooting for each other. And in particular, the Japanese team was pushing for Sky to Sky when even though she fell during her run. And that was happening throughout the contest. And it was it was actually a way for traditional sports to take note and to see, like, wait a minute, why are we competing in the first place? Are we competing for these individuals to find joy and to find a camaraderie through the sport? Or are we only competing for bragging rights? Right. Like what, what's the sports industrial complex that's behind that? Wow. What's 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 really happening with Simone Biles, right? When Simone Biles is having, you know, it needs to take a break and step away from the game, um, or, or Naomi Osaka, 
I always think that if that were skateboarding, they would have the space to be themselves, film themselves just like we do because we've been marginalized for it and we've grown and done this thing together and on our own. Imagine what all the athletes could do in that kind of context too. And that's not to say the sport, of course, like we want competitions, but these are competitions we have in order to be together, to really be a community. And that's not something that happens. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot for traditional sports to take away from skateboarding and having those on the bigger stages only makes it better for everyone to see and maybe adopted in, in, in basketball or in football. You know, I, I think about Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have a job. And I always talk about that in my classes is that even though he helped bring everybody forward, he's the one who sort of suffers in that mm -hmm. space. And if he was in skateboarding, he would have the ability to have, he'd have a best-selling skateboard or best-selling shoe because there's the space for the individual at all times. And there's such a low barrier to entry. If you want to start your own team, you can, right? So that's the other reason that there's been a rise of women and LGBTQ folks in skateboarding. So as we get bigger, more people are just saying, whoa, nobody owns this? Oh, I, I want a part of that freedom. So the bigger exposure is actually better for us because the values aren't changing and we do negotiate those spaces. It is something that's not perfect. Like we negotiate with the Olympics, with, with um, you know, like Fox Sports or, you know, those networks, but we know who we are as we participate in our activity. And I think mm -hmm. that those values don't really, don't change. And if they do, then it's not skateboarding. Mm -hmm. Somebody's trying to put one over on our top. <laughs> the okie doke, as it were. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I, I did want to circle back. Thank you. You've been so generous with your time, but you mentioned Cuba and Cuba Skate. I think that'll just be a lot of interest to people. Could you first speak a little bit about Cuba Skate? And then there's that question again. I want to circ back, circle back about uh, the criminalization of youth and oh, asking again, like, are you saying that that's not something you see in Cuba with regards to skateboarding? And what, uh, and what could... Um, what can we learn from skateboarding culture in Cuba? Okay, so there's there's three there, questions. There is still, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's okay. It's only our first time together. So, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, what I would say is when I do see there is criminalization because that's something that happens everywhere because it's new. And there is the tie of there's it's more that adults who want to criminalize young people will always find an excuse. Mm -hmm. So that's actually, Amen. that's actually Amen. really what it comes down to. You know, when young people are having fun, some people just don't like to see young people together in groups having fun to begin with. And that's just how that happens. So it depends on the situation. Um, there's, uh, there are times when I've been skating in Cuba, when I was working with the nonprofit Cuba State, where gentlemen would stop me and say, you look like freedom. I said, I don't know, what, what do you mean? They said, because, because you don't have the $5 Cuban haircut Right. And that you're pushing along in the way and you're moving fast. You're moving through space in your own way. And that's not something that we all get to do. And so we really love seeing you skateboarding and to see it. Truly, they said to see a black man. And particularly when you think about the racial politics that are on the island um, to see a, you know, a, for them, an Afro-Cuban, but for me, an African-American man, a dark skinned man pushing on a skateboard that had a significant a significant feeling feeling for a lot of folks. Now back to policing, there's things that, that happens here in the US too, right? It's still, it is still criminalized. Um, however, things are changing. And one of the things that's happening is with me teaching my courses, which are focused on skateboarding and action sports culture 
getting people to recognize that what young people are into is always the most important thing and always what we're supposed to be supporting. As a university, we should always be creating classes and curriculum that whatever topic that they're into, it's our job as adults to be the ones that are there going, hey, you know what? You're into that art side of skateboarding. You could get a degree in art. Or if you're really out in the streets and you're looking at the, the way the stairs are designed, the handrails are designed, and you're moving through space that way, maybe you'd be interested, interested in architecture and design. So there's all these different aspects that the university should be doing. And luckily, uh, that's happening with me and my new university, uh, the San Diego State mm -hmm. down here. They're really focused on that at SDSU and seeing the ways that skaters could be recognized. But that's the same thing when I talk to, you know, Mayor Karen Bass and her team um, or, or if I'm operating over in Europe. It's getting us as adults to understand that when young people are finding something great and finding when you look at the diverse communities that make up any skateboarder, skateboarders in any city and any town, we need to tap into that. So all of that is really, you know, that that criminalization is changing. But when it is still happening, I'm very, very much an advocate in getting um, getting the, the older generations, legislators and all to understand there's something special going on. When was the last time you saw somebody from age 70 or age seven inhabit the same space, wow. right? That doesn't happen in basketball. That doesn't, you pick, play a pickup game in different generations. So, you know, this is something really special going on, intergenerational learning and moving beyond racial and, and, and ethnic and gender boundaries. And just lastly, you know, the skateboarding culture and hip hop have always walked arm in Always. arm uh and it, it, if anybody who's listened to what you've said about skateboarding you could put the word hip-hop in there a lot of times yes. like the ba the battle between being marginalized and being mainstream how that's yes, how that's negotiated uh how it exists in different countries the commonalities i mean yeah i i heard so much of hip-hop and everything you were saying um and we're at hip-hop at 50 and i was yes. wondering what is the hip hop for Dr. Williams. Oh, that's great. Well, I'll tell you, I'm thinking about hip hop being 50 all the time. And, and you know, I, I was listening to the Tribe Called Quest the other day, just like getting back to roots. Um, and there is some research I will just tell you that I've been working on, which is looking at the relationship between hip hop and hardcore culture and skateboarding, mm. that they've all been these youth voices. And the way that Europe knows hip hop, as you think of, you know, Tropical Quest or Method Man or Wu-Tang, all of that, those sounds weren't just carried on the radio. They were carried through skateboarding videos that were circulated through all of those communities. So, you know, my relationship to hip hop, I'm listening to, you know, what's new, but also some of the throwback tracks because we were always lockstep hand in hand from, with, with the bands then and the bands now. Particularly, one last bit is thinking about Kendrick Lamar. When he dropped his album, the last album, when we're all listening to it and going crazy, I get a text from Ghana. The world was like, the album dropped. Kendrick Lamar's in Ghana. Well, Kendrick Lamar was at the Freedom Skate Park in Ghana what? when that uh, album dropped. Yes, so that's how deep our roots run. He was there, and I got the video and the text from my friends who run that park. And that was just, for me, just such a moment of connection to know he was there showing them that he still had some skills from when he was younger in L.A. And his presence there was just so wonderful to show that connection between hip hop, skateboarding on the global stage. 
My goodness. Uh, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us on Eddie Sports you. TV. That was fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was an honor to be on the show. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Edge of Sports TV. Thank you so much, Byron Hurt. Thank you so much, Neftali Williams. Big shout out to everybody here at The Real News Network. For everybody out there watching, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Thank you so much for watching The Real News Network, where we lift up the voices, stories, and struggles that you care about most. And we need your help to keep doing this work. So please tap your screen now, subscribe, and donate to The Real News Network. Solidarity forever.